Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, and we ask your blessing upon us now as we consider it. Give us ears to hear what you'd have us to hear, and hearts to receive what you'd have us to receive, so that we may do as you'd have us to do. We ask this in the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. When scholars go about outlining or dividing up the book of Isaiah, the clearest, one of the clearest, if not the clearest, divide or break in the book comes at the end of chapter number 39 and the beginning of chapter number 40. In fact, it is so stark a divide, so big a difference between the two, that many scholars will say it is two different books that have been put together with different authors because the style and the the uh, difference between the two halves of the book are that marked. So you'll hear things, people talk about things like Deutero-Isaiah, meaning the second half or part of the second half of the book of Isaiah. Now, my intention is not to wade into authorship wars this morning, but simply to note that our reading from Isaiah chapter number 40 and following marks a turning point in the book as a whole. In the first part, chapters 1 through 39 we find a somewhat uneven or rough part of the book. It is very rocky. It is a part that is full of judgment. Uh, God is pronouncing punishment for the sins of Israel and Judah and the nations. And these judgments, however, are punctuated by occasional promises of return and peace and repentance. And so we get through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Uh, we have this feel of undulation of the lows of sin and punishment, followed by the highs of God's bringing His people back and returning them and promising them the joys of His blessing in the land again. Now, as we said last week, and we looked at Isaiah chapter 64, was it? Uh, last week, the bulk of Isaiah is written in poetry. But in the first half, in this first 39 chapters, we also find these occasional insertions of historical narrative prose. We have the call of Isaiah in chapter number 6. We have Isaiah and Ahaz in 7 and 8, where we get the uh, Isaiah's famous, especially this time of year, his pronouncement that a virgin shall conceive. And then we have an extended look at Hezekiah's reign in chapters 36 through 39, closing out the first part of the book. The sudden switch between poetry and narrative prose in this first half of the book adds to the sort of rocky, uneven feel that is given in this first part. And once again, here at the end of 39, the beginning of 40, we have a transition that takes place. And I want to take a few minutes just to look at this transition itself and what it might teach us. Chapters number 36 through 39 contain the most extensive portion of historical narrative in the book. It is almost a word-for-word match from 2 Kings 18 to 20. And these chapters chronicle the story of King Hezekiah. 
Now, David may be the most famous of Israel's king and in the greatest in the sense that he established the kingdom. He, God used him in amazing ways. We have, of all the characters in the Old Testament, really we find more out about David than any other character. He is held up as the greatest of the man who Stephen will say is a, was a man after God's own heart. Um, the man whom God used more than any other king in, in Israel's history. But when it comes to the most righteous of kings, in that sense, the greatest of kings, Hezekiah probably was the guy. Of all the kings of Israel, he was the one who seemed to have lived, was portrayed as having lived the greatest and best and most righteous life. He was the best of the best, if you will. And Isaiah recounts in the first in chapters 36 and 37, he recounts his faith and humility in crisis. When the Assyrians attacked, they had overrun the king, northern kingdom of Israel and they were threatening to overrun Judah as well. And we see Hezekiah's great faith in coming before God and pleading and putting his trust in Him. And we find the story of God's miraculous deliverance of Judah. Yet like all great Old Testament characters, no matter how great and righteous he was, Hezekiah was not flawless. And Isaiah's portrayal of him reflects the, the unevenness of the entire poor, first portion of his book. We have the account of God's miraculously healing Hezekiah from a deadly illness, following which Hezekiah becomes proud. Babylon, a great power, a rising power, in the east, sends envoys to Hezekiah saying, We've heard you've been sick, we want to, but you've gotten better. We want to congratulate you on getting better. And Hezekiah, with his heart lifted up in pride, says he shows the envoys everything he had in his kingdom. He showed him all the wealth and all that he had in his kingdom. And it seems that he did it as if he was showing him, them, This is my strength and my wealth. Look what I have done. Look what I have acquired. Instead of saying, this all is of God and I am his steward. Look what God has done. Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, what did you show the envoys? And, and Hezekiah says, I, there was nothing I withheld from them. I showed them everything. And Isaiah says, and everything will be taken from you. But not from you, but from your children and your grandchildren. Babylon will take everything. And the first part of the book of Isaiah ends with Hezekiah's words when he says to Isaiah, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he, Hezekiah, thought, there will be peace and security in my days. It is commonly pointed out in reading this passage here and in 2 Kings that Hezekiah is selfishly careless about the future of his kingdom, his children, and his grandchildren, leaving us disappointed at the end of his life. And this, this may well be true, but far more is at play here in Isaiah than mere selfishness on Hezekiah's part. 
It is an intentionally pointed way of ending both Hezekiah's life and this first part of the book. He's more than just giving us a moral story, Isaiah. He's not just saying, here's a moral, learn from it and, and grow. Isaiah is, Isaiah is holding up perhaps the greatest, the best gods of God's people. The one who is the most righteous. The one who has done, obeyed God most, more than any other king in Judah. And after all the ups and downs and the longing for stability and peace in the first part of the book, we get to Hezekiah, who once again, if he's not the top, he's among the top two. And from the best of the best, the most that we can hope for, the most that we get, is a little bit of peace and security for a short time. That's how he ends the first part. The note that rings loudest in our ears at the end is one that says, this peace won't last. And that's what we're supposed to hear here at the end of chapter 39. Yet from this discordant note we move quickly to the melodic tones of chapter, verse 1 of chapter 40. Comfort, comfort ye my people. But he just told us that peace won't last. He's just told us that the best of kings can only bring a short time of peace and security. What comfort then can we find? We've just had 39 chapters of a roller coaster ride ending in the realization that even the best won't bring peace. Yet God says, comfort my people. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem. Tell her that her warfare has ended. For though Hezekiah has been the best so far, he is not the one hoped for. There is another king who will fulfill the, all the promises that have been made. And so we find Isaiah saying, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The picture here is one of a historical event, or a regular historical thing that would happen in ancient times. When the king would go to visit a town or a village in his realm, and he was preparing for the visit, the people would go about it, and he would make sure it happened that his road to this town and this village was nice and easy and smooth and so that he would have a good journey to visit his people. And so the road, the way would be prepared for the king. Now, this is not just an ancient practice. It still happens in some sense today. I, when I lived in, in Russia, if you traveled around in 
villages, the roads were awful. We, you've never, if you've not been overseas in places, you've never traveled in the States on roads like these. So just, they would be condemned here. You could only drive on small portions of them because there were not potholes. There were pot pits all over the road and ditches. And so you'd drive along these roads sometimes, and then you'd make a turn, and all of a sudden it would just be smooth as glass, the road. And you would know this must be the road that some important person travels on regularly on his, way to, on his way to his office, right? Or when an important person from Moscow would come, then you would see roads being repaired and made. Why? Because someone important was coming. A ruler was coming, and they were preparing the way for this person to come. And so God says, a way will be prepared not for a Russian politician, not for Hezekiah, not for the best of the best human rulers, but for me. For I will come. God himself will come. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let us note one more thing about the, this passage and how it is written. Given the nature of the second part of Isaiah, it is highly unlikely that God is saying, like a Russian politician, I'm coming and you'd better make things smooth for me. I don't want to spill my coffee on the way. He knows he's coming to suffer. And while we are called to prepare the way, the valleys being lifted up and the mountains laid low are a promise of what God Himself will do. He says, be prepared, prepare, cry out He's coming, but I will be the one who makes the valleys high and the mountains low. And the image itself provides a contrast to the entire part First part of Isaiah. After being battered and beaten in the first 39 chapters, suffering whiplash from being bounced around, getting motion sick from the constant undulation, God says, don't worry, I will make the way smooth. And this is what we find in the second half of the entire book, which is so much more smooth and even than the first. The great emphasis is now in God's salvation of His people, the fulfillment of His plan. Gone even are the sudden insertions of historical narrative. We have none of those in the second part. Instead, we find a steady flow of some of the most exquisite passages in all of Scripture. We find the passages like the suffering servant poems promising the coming of a Savior who will complete God's work of salvation. Going from chapter 39 to chapter 40 and following is like turning off of one of those difficult Russian village roads onto the smooth road that has been prepared for the way of a ruler. And God says, I will do that.
Isaiah, in his very form of writing, is promising and illustrating the peace that God himself will bring. It is beautiful, and it's a reminder to us that we must not brush aside the forms in which biblical authors write in an attempt to get to the real content of Scripture. The forms themselves are content, and we should pay attention to them. But part of this contact, content is, in fact, the truth that only God, only He, can bring peace and salvation. Our hope, our trust, our faith must be in Him alone. If we're ever to experience the second half of the book of Isaiah, it will not come through the Hezekiahs of the world. It will come through Christ alone. Now, that's a good thing to remember, especially now in America. It's, a, it's good to remember anywhere, it's a, but we live in now in America, right? And we have an election coming up. We always have elections coming up. The, the election cycle is always undulating, always rocky, always rough. And probably we don't have many Hezekiahs on our ballot, the best of the best out there, the most righteous among us running for office. But even if we did, even if we did, we had lots of them running. They would not bring the peace and salvation that we need and long for. It is not there we put our hope. It is not in an economy that may get better and fill our bank accounts. That won't make the way smooth. It's not in friends. It's not in family. The only hope we have is in the one who will come. The one who has come and the one who will. It is often said, especially in Isaiah, as he looks forward to the coming of the one, the one that a voice cries, prepare the way for, that Isaiah sees two mountain peaks in a distance that from a distance look as if they are one. The two comings of Christ. The coming that we are now celebrating in a couple weeks is Christmas. But also during this time of Advent, we remember that we are not just celebrating what has happened in the past. We are looking forward to what will happen in the future. Christ's coming again. We heard about this in our second Peter chapter number three reading. We have the hope that is, comes from what he has done, leading to our living as Isaiah lived, looking for his future coming. So we are still waiting, as I said last week, we are still waiting with Isaiah. We still say, as we said last week, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He has done it. And he will do it again. His first coming gives us the hope to continue to wait for his coming again. And to put our full hope and trust in him. Not in ourselves, not in Hezekiah's, but in the Son of God himself. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen.